So I think neurodiversity is also sort of a buzzword now and um, it's sometimes used correctly and sometimes not. Um, but at the root, it's just this idea, neuro meaning, you know, brain having to do with the brain and the nervous system, um, that there is a diversity in humans among how our brains and our nervous systems work and that there's not one way for brains to be right. There's no right way to um there's no correct style of thinking or of speaking or of doing, um, but we have lots of different brains. And so when I say uh, neurodiversity, I'm referring to the range it, that's present in human beings. Um, and specifically, you also hear it kind of related to people who are autistic like me, um, people with ADHD, people who have had some kind of traumatic brain injury like a concussion or a stroke. Good day, greetings, hello, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. We at True Hope Canada are a mind and body based supplement company that is dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non-invasive nutritional means. For more information about us, please visit truehopecanada.com. And if you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing so you don't miss out on future episodes. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming neurodiversity life coach Danielle Sullivan to the podcast. Danielle works mainly with neurodivergent adults. She uses solution-focused positive psychology and transformational coaching methods depending on what her clients need. And today we're going to be discussing how neurodiverse life coaching can help people move forward and succeed. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining me on True Hope Cast. Welcome to the show. What's going well for you? How are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, everything is going pretty well today. We have a really nice day. I've, it's morning for me and it's sunny and it's nice. So I'm looking forward to getting outside today. And uh, yeah, just kind of having a good day. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And we were just talking about your beautiful words behind you, inhale courage and exhale fear. Have you got, what's the story behind that? Oh, thank you. Um, it's really just to help remind me because I am somebody who gets overwhelmed and I am somebody who gets anxious. And I think the first thing you drop sometimes when you're in that state of mind is breathing. Breathing is one of the most basic helpful things you can do. So just the the reminder to keep breathing and it'll, it's going to, it's going to be okay. Just get through it. So, yep. <laughs> yeah, I think when we when we put some um, conscious thought into our breathing, we certainly think about inhaling and exhaling, but not not quite putting a word of word mm -hmm. to it like courage or fear. I really like that. That's adding a bit bit more uh, adding a bit more to it. Yeah, I think you know, not to get too into it, but you know, breathing in engages that part of your your brain, that part of your nervous system that is the calming part, especially if you're belly breathing, right? And so remembering kind of adding the courage piece to it for me reminds me that I have control to some degree. We don't have control over our lives, but I have control over how I feel in most cases. And I have control over what trajectory, what choices I make. And so choosing to engage my nervous system to my benefit and choosing to calm down and then to let go of the fear and make a decision based on connection, right? And, and a collaborative intent instead of being scared that something's not going to work um, really helps me to focus and ground. So it's one of my go-tos. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you explaining that. That's really <laughs> great. It's really good advice to kick these, kick things off with, but as an introduction, can you just let us know who you are and what it is that you do? Sure thing. So my name's Danielle Sullivan. I am the host of the Neurodiverging podcast. Um, I'm an autistic coach, a neurodiversity coach. I work with uh, neurodivergent individuals, mostly adults on 
all sorts of things, um, social skills, uh, kind of life skills, like learning how to be independent, um, emotional intelligence and regulation and parenting. So I kind of uh, stick my fingers in many little pots um, and I really enjoy it. It's a, it's a really good job. So. <laughs> cool. Well, what are you tell, what is neurodiversity? What is neurodivergence? I think, I think a lot of people have heard of, um, let's say neuroplasticity or, mm-hmm. you know, neurolinguistics, you know, we, we, we have a lot of terminologies within the science world and the medical community and within different practitioners as well. So can you mm-hmm. break that, that word down for us and, you know, Absolutely. what does that mean? Yeah. So I think neurodiversity is also sort of a buzzword now and um, it's sometimes used correctly and sometimes not. Um, but at the root, it's just this idea, neuro meaning, you know, brain having to do with the brain and the nervous system. Um that there is a diversity in humans among how our brains and our nervous systems work and that there's not one way for brains to be right. There's no right way to, um, there's no correct style of thinking or of speaking or of doing, um, but we have lots of different brains. And so when I say uh, neurodiversity, I'm referring to the range that's present in human beings. Um, And specifically, you also hear it kind of related to people who are autistic, like me, um, people with ADHD, people who have had some kind of traumatic brain injury, like a concussion or a stroke, um, people who are dyslexic uh, or dyspraxic or uh, have other sort of what's usually termed learning disabilities, um, people with Down syndrome, um, people with, there's like, there's a huge, I couldn't name everybody, (laughs) you know, people who are schizophrenic, people who are bipolar, and there's many, many, many more people who are neurodivergent. Um, And when we kind of group those folks together, we talk about the neurodivergence of the population, that there are many different kinds of thinking styles and brains. And then we have people who are the sort of group, uh, they may or may not be the majority actually, but they have the the most power in our society are the neurotypical people, are the people with kind of the brains that are most supported in our society, the the expected brains say. Um, So yeah, there's just, That's kind of what I work with. And so a lot of neurodivergent people are uh, held up to what we call neurotypical standards. You're expected to act away or behave away or think away or communicate away. That is not really um, part of part of how how we naturally do things. And so we're many of us are pushed into more neurotypical styles in a way that can be harmful in the long term. So when I work with neurodivergent people, part of what I'm doing is saying, well, you know, what is you holding yourself to a standard that is not really reasonable for you as a neurodivergent individual? And what parts are things that we can actually skill build that are just a gap in skills that maybe we want to bridge a little bit? So, yeah. Is there, <laughs> is there a place where you would learn to become a neurodivergent practitioner? Is this something that's kind of new? Are there schools out there? Is this, mm-hmm. being, is this being taught to people? So I think that there is more awareness of neurodiversity in um coaching programs in therapy kind of training programs. Um, But it's still, there's not great resources yet. And that's part of why I started my podcast is I was uh, identified pretty late in life in my thirties after my young son was identified. And there are many, many, many other parents, um, particularly women who tend to present autistic differently than men do, not always, but often. And um, a lot of us are missed and, and late diagnosed. And so Um, there's this whole group of people out there, excuse me, who have had to learn about ourselves relatively late. Um, And so many of us have done a lot of kind of individual independent work on 
you know, doing research, reading. Um, and there are some therapists out there who have done that work and some coaches out there who've done that work, but it's not really um, institutionalized yet, I guess is the best way to say it. There are some great organizations out there who are doing a lot of research and putting out a lot of white papers and trying to get data out there to practitioners who want to become more neurodiversity friendly, is the terminology we use, or neurodiversity inclusive, right? Um, who want to work with folks with different brains and be respectful and, and uh, informed about it. Um, but there's there's not a many good programs. Um, I know that uh, AANE, which is the Autism Asperger's Network, uh, which is an autistic-led organization, has just started a coaching program that's based in in um, kind of autism studies. Um, I know a couple of occupational therapy programs in United States uh, graduate programs are have a, a kind of autism or neurodiversity lens that they are starting to promote. Um, and I'm sure you know there. Are, I'm sure there are other individual folks. There are lots of people who do sort of neurodiversity training under the kind of umbrella of diversity, equity, and inclusion training, the DEI training, who have a neurodiversity focus in there. Um, but I think a lot of us are really just sort of pulling together the resources that we found more helpful and, and trying to give them to other people and pass it down that way. Hopefully in the next 10 years, we'll have a lot more sort of formal programs and training available for folks. But yeah, do at you, least in the you... U.S., it's still pretty well, new. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I was just wondering, what, are there any thoughts that you have in why maybe it's being it's being slow to develop and to establish? Mm -hmm. As you say, you're having to pull from your own resources. There aren't a lot of um, organizations mm -hmm. there that are creating these kind of programs themselves. So it sounds like it's it's slow to get momentum is is this because there's like a lack of under a still a lack of understanding when it comes to autism and the the other range of um conditions that are out there you know you mentioned so many of them so many of them at the beginning and that's obviously where the birth of neurodiversity comes mm -hmm. from so I, I can totally understand why it might be difficult to create a training program i mean it'd be easy to create a training program for let's say an acupuncturist or a nutritionist, you know, like it's quite specific. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of, we, we understand so much more about those, those things, mm -hmm. but maybe we're not developing these programs or this, or, or this um, way of teaching because there's a lack of understanding and, you know, not a lot of people want to dive into something where it's kind of, you know, misunderstood perhaps or there's not an, there's not so much information to pull from to create mm -hmm. something that's really challenging so i certainly have sympathy for, for that but what do you think in regards to to how it's gone so far so i have many thoughts <laughs> um one thing i'll just say is many places so i'm i'm based in the united states and i work with people worldwide but the united states is sort of where my focus is um and i work mostly with autistic adhd people so you know i don't want to try to speak for everybody who's neurodivergent because there's it's a huge number of the population um in terms of autism i can say um that uh, in the United States, until very recently, there wasn't a very good understanding of how autism, of the the spectrum of autism. And spectrum doesn't mean that there's people who kind of work better on one end and work worse on the other end, but rather that we have lots of different traits uh, that comprise the autistic profile. 
and not all of us have all of those traits. So there's mixes of different traits, right? You have people who are speaking, people who are non-speaking, people who can have a family and people who are less independent and need more support with day-to-day -day tasks. Um, you know, people, I'm, I'm trying to like think of common. So I can, for example, have a family, be a parent, um, mostly manage my, you know, I manage my business. I can mostly do day-to-day -day tasks, but I also need support with many things that are sort of hidden behind. And for a long time, people like me weren't um, kind of, what's the word? We weren't put under the autism spectrum. We weren't understood to be autistic. Um, instead, you had people who were needed more support day to day who were thought to be autistic. And many of them were put into um, kind of institutionalized for a very, very long time. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the big sort of autistic uh, rights leaders has been Temple Grandin, just in the idea that she's somebody who um, she's written many books and she's um, in her, I want to say 60s or 70s now. And she is somebody who had high support needs, but was not institutionalized, who had a parent who happened to support her highly and, and help her a lot and made it through school and graduate school and has become a leader in her industry. And people like Temple were um, mostly institutionalized, you know, 50, 40, 30 years ago. Um, and so you had this big kind of gap between people like me and people who need more support. Um, and I, I do need more support, so I don't mean to put myself way over here, but sort of in the middle. Um, and uh, I think neurotypical people or people who weren't working with autistic people every day just weren't aware of how many of us there were because we were literally segregated and separated out. Um, and those of us like me were just sort of put under the oddball category or a little off or a little weird, right? Um, and you know many people like us, we were just not pathologized into autism the way we are now. Um, so that's one reason is I think there was just a totally different understanding of what autism was and how it worked and who who counted as autistic. Um, in the past few decades. And then the second thing is that um, for a long time, and this is true in many cases with a minority group, um, we had uh, training programs or, or support programs or special education programs that were led by neurotypical people, right? Um, who were many of them doing the absolute best they could and really trying to improve our quality of life, but also were coming at it from this perspective that neurotypical is the way we want to be. And so we should make autistic people more neurotypical. And that doesn't work. We have lots of research that that is like highly traumatic and causes a lot of uh, kind of psych issues for, for autistic people. Um, so it's not the way we want to approach it, but it is the way that, you know, um, it was handled for a very long time and to some degree is still handled. Um, you know, many of the folks who go into special education, um, which is a term I don't love, but is the sort of umbrella term for, you know, supporting non-neurotypical people. Um, are, are neurotypical and they mean well, but they're also coming from this lens of we can fix this autistic child to not fidget, to not uh, spin, to not, um, you know, stim, um, to not, uh, what else do we do? I don't know, repeat things, right? Um, all those sort of stereotypical autistic traits. And and we do those things for a reason, like they're not just so we're different, they, they support us in a certain way. Um, and so until very recently, I think that hasn't been well understood. And it's starting, like there are a lot of more autistic led organizations now who are doing the advocacy work and really trying to kind of get the word out that there are ways to support autistics being autistic and still integrate us into society and have everyone kind of be happy with that integration. But it's definitely a work in progress. So I hope that was a helpful answer. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I not really had the thought process that having somebody neurotypical 
have all the all, <clears throat> all the best intentions to you know support and create something to support these individuals <clears throat> but if you don't have the actual internal experience and trying to um create something to get get the create neuro um it's very difficult to explain there's a lot of neuros going on it is yeah yeah. (laughs) but to um try and get it from the trying to target it from the lens that you've got neurotypical individuals creating these programs for these neurodivergent individuals and trying to create the trying to get them to be neurotypical Mm -hmm. that doesn't that doesn't really when you express it so simply like that it really that wouldn't really make sense because Mm -hmm. you know we're, we're all so different i was my next question was about you know, you specialize in an autistic and ADHD adults, mm-hmm. but do you think anyone can kind of benefit from the therapy that goes on with neurodivergency? Because I think, I think everyone's brain is wildly different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we say, we say neurotypical, but there are a lot of individuals that, you know, can certainly benefit from many different types of therapy mm-hmm. to, you know, support brain health and to support function and to, you know, to do all of these things. So do you think anyone can benefit from the, 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 the types of therapies that, that go on within the neurodivergent realm? Sure. So um, I'll just say that I'm a coach and not a therapist. So I can answer generally, but don't take this as like therapist advice because it's not. (laughs) But um, personally, from my experience as an autistic person and also with my children who are neurodivergent as well, I have an autistic and an ADHD child each. I have two children, one of each. Um, And um, the therapies that we've most engaged in are sort of the traditional talk therapy, which can be very helpful in digging out um, kind of cognitive distortions. Many autistic people have dealt with significant trauma just from trying to uh, live in a world that's not really uh, supportive of us and built for us. Um, So those therapies can be really helpful. And I do recommend them to clients all the time because as a coach, I work with practical kind of on the ground things. Um, But if somebody is having, you know, a much bigger kind of emotional issue, I think, um, you know, there as a neurodivergent individual, it can be harder to find a good therapist who is going to come come to you not wanting to fix you, but rather to hear you as, as an autistic or as a neurodivergent individual. But they do exist. There are many good therapists. So I do recommend talk therapy when possible. Um, I love occupational therapy for me and for my children. Many of us uh, have sensory processing challenges or differences. Um, they can look all sorts of different ways. For example, I'm, uh, I have auditory processing disorder so that the I hear fine, but the way my brain interprets sound can sometimes be delayed. And so I'm one of those people who's like, can you say that again? And then halfway through you repeating it, I'm like, wait, I got it now. Um, That's auditory processing disorder, right? And so um, many therapies can be really helpful with that. And that's not, again, fixing me into neurotypicalness, but helping me, you know, bridge a a skill gap in, in society where it's helpful to be able to hear people and to be able to respond to them in a certain amount of time. Um, So you know, again, some occupational therapists are more about making you look more neurotypical and some of them really get, and many of them are neurodivergent. You know, it is true that people go into those kinds of training programs often because they're looking for support themselves. And so you have many autistic therapists and many autistic or ADHD OTs. Um, but again, you have to be careful as a neurodivergent person kind of screening. Um, I think they're also fantastic for neurotypical people because many neurotypical people have you know, autism, ADHD, and many of, not all of the neurodivergences, but many of them are a cluster of traits. And when you have enough of those traits, 
that gives you this autistic label. So it's not about, um, you know, do you match one, two, three on the criteria, but rather this cumulative, like how much and how much does it change how you interact with your daily life? Like how much does it change how you live? Um, and that's different for something like bipolar disorder than it is for autism. But for autism specifically, um, a lot of us neurotypical or not have some of these traits that comprise the autism spectrum. And so if you are having kind of a skills gap or you need support with something, I think therapies can be a great way to access that regardless of your actual neurotype, uh, what kind of brain you have. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think of other like, um, I think a lot of people could um, get value out of sensory support, whether that's through an occupational therapist or some other professional. Um, many people are overwhelmed by sensory input in our daily lives um, in terms of noise, uh, parenting. I get so, I mean, I work with autistic parents, but even neurotypical parents with autistic children who come through uh, parent coaching will say they're overwhelmed by the touch that involves the parenting involves the constant noise parenting involves. Um, and that's sensory overwhelm, right? Whether you're neurotypical or not. So a lot of the tactics we use with emotional regulation can be really helpful for anybody, regardless of neurotype. Wow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, it's so, it's so fascinating <laughs> that, um, our brains are so remarkably individual. And it's so cool. It makes me so, so excited. Cool. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And just, 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 just goes to show that how wonderfully unique we are and mm -hmm. the approach to anything, you know, be it, you know, I'm a, I'm a holistic nutritionist and I've written hundreds and hundreds of programs for people. Yeah. None of them are the same. Yeah. Cause we're also wildly different with kind of most body bodily systems. So it, it truly is fascinating. And, um, a question, question popped up for me because I don't know much about it and I want to know, but what's the, 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 for those individuals that don't find an amazing coach like you, who's got the experience and, you know, and, and you, you're coming at it from a very, very specific and unique and correct angle, I suppose. But there'd be so many, so many people that, that don't find you. And I was wondering kind of what's the typical route of diagnosis and therapy for those, those individuals yeah. So again, I guess I'll just speak from an autistic perspective instead of trying to cover everybody who's neurodivergent um, because that's my wheelhouse. But um, I can say that uh, many people are caught as children nowadays. We have better screening processes um, in place, at least in the United States. Um, and I think even better, as far as I understand, in, in uh, Britain, uh, the UK and in Australia um, are uh, much more ahead in terms of understanding neurodivergence than the United States is. Um, and I lost my train a little bit. Give me one sec. No worries. You said, oh, diagnosis. Sorry, I like totally lost what we were talking about. Okay, so many people are caught as children. And then um, there are still many folks who are not caught, especially women um, or uh, identified female birth people, um, people of color. Um, and I really do just mean non-white people of all, of all kinds are unfortunately tend not to be caught. Um, Spanish speakers um, are not caught as often as English speakers in the United States. Um, and this is often just because of kind of cultural differences in terms of how people parent and what people expect from children, um, but also just um, lack of access to um, good good medical care um, and, and good intervention um, at the young ages. Um, and so for people like me who are caught older, um, a lot of it is I've heard many, many, many parents 
who have been self who have self-identified themselves after a child has been identified. So in my case, um, my son started like spinning things very early in his life, um, had atypical um, times when he learned to stand, learned to crawl. Uh, his speech was delayed. He had a couple of characteristics and I was like, hmm, I think this might be autism. Um, and so, you know, we brought him in, we got him evaluated. And the more in that process of getting him evaluated, because the wait list can be years long, um, I had read so many books and done so much research and gotten online and started to talk to people. Um, and the more research I did, the more I was like, ah, <laughs> I am also autistic. Um, and also these other people in my family who were never caught, because it is often hereditary to some degree. Um, so a lot of us then self-identify when we're adults, and then some of us will go and get a formal diagnosis as well. It sort of depends if it's going to be helpful for you by the time you've kind of self-identified or not. Um, so the process looks different for everybody. Some people kind of go to their uh, general physician and are able to get a diagnosis. Some people have uh, go through a huge, our process with my son was we went to through a hospital system um, and he was evaluated by, there was a general psych um, a occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a speech therapist, a child development specialist, I think a special education specialist. It was a whole panel of people and they each did their own evaluation over a period of a couple of days. And then kind of we came together and got this big results kind of thing. Um, that so sounds amazing. it was, I was very happy that they took me seriously because my son is an atypical presentation of autism. And so some of the traits they sometimes look for are not present with him, but then other traits are. Um, but it was also sort of a depressing experience. I, I appreciate the medical care. And it was, it was definitely a case of everyone there was there because they wanted to support and help people like me and my kiddo. But um, it was also this idea that they didn't want to find autism because if they did then he would be autistic forever and it would it was like a life sentence right and having autism isn't like having cancer like it's not a disease and although some people have co-occurrences with autism that are very difficult and I don't mean to diminish those um, or very challenging the autism itself in my experience is not usually the thing that is causing um you know, a difficulty with daily life, right? Yeah. Some people have intellectual disabilities. Some people also have Downs. Some people also have, you know, it's it's usually a collection of things. Um, so it was very frustrating where I was like, yes, he's diagnosed. Like now we know what to do. Now we know, you know, what the next step should be. Um, instead, this group of people at the table were just like, you know, we're really sorry, but he is autistic. And I, I was just like, what are you sorry for? <laughs> like, why are you approaching parents? And I felt happy that I had done enough research and had worked through it myself individually enough to come to this point of being like, no, this is not a death sentence. This is an okay thing. And I'm happy for this information. Um, but I just thought of so many other parents going through that and being told by a group of medical professionals, like, we're so sorry, he's autistic. And what that must be like as parents yeah. and how awful that must be. And then they feel like they spend their whole lives feeling like they have to fix their kiddo and doing who knows how much damage to their family um, kind of team dynamic and to their kiddo, unfortunately, sometimes because they feel like they have to fix it instead of just supporting what is there. Um, so yeah, I, I know I've gone off from your original question, but the diagnosis process looks really different for a lot of different people. We have self-diagnosis all the way up to formal team kind of diagnosis and everywhere in between. Um, and whether people even seek one tends to depend on what they're looking to get from it and what 
um, support they need. We sought one because we needed speech therapy. And the only way to access speech therapy under our insurance at the time was to either have an autism diagnosis or for him to like have had a stroke. Um, there was no way to access speech therapy um, for any other reason, which is a whole other topic and is ridiculous. But, you know, luck kind of luckily for us, he did have autism so we could access speech therapy, but it wasn't the autism that called, caused the need for speech therapy. So it was just like this wacky insurance issue that caused us to, um, I don't know if I would have pursued diagnosis for him, honestly, if we didn't need the speech therapy covered under insurance, because there's not, you know, for us personally, it didn't create a whole lot of value because we already knew. So like, yeah. what you know, so you yeah. you obviously had so much experience <laughs> with it anyway. So yeah, that's, that's a remarkable um, insight in regards to that diagnosis process and how that group of doctors that do, you know, they those white white coats hold a lot of power when it comes to when it comes to that type of a thing and especially mm -hmm. a group of them labeling labeling the child and then you know considering that to be you know like negative or like mm -hmm. really bad or you know that's uh that can that, that would hold with the parent for such a long period of time and that yeah. would travel through to the kids without mm -hmm. question yeah um how would you approach um an individual who might you know that you might suspect to be neurodiverse um the same way you approach anybody else <laughs> i guess is your question about should can you give me more information about your yeah, question yeah no, approach yeah. them how i think probably i think it's i think it's probably coming from the um because you're talking about you know you you didn't find out about yourself until you were 30 mm -hmm. so there must be still lots of adults individuals out there that yeah. that are you know that obviously living totally fine and normal lives um but there will be you know maybe a family member or a friend is you know concerned perhaps about, mm -hmm. about the well-being of an individual and that comes out of a place of compassion yeah um so yeah i mean there's no easy way to i mean obviously communication and being open and you know but doing it in, in a in a uh, respectable way i suppose yeah in, in your experience what, what what would you recommend or what would you say yeah, so I thank you for like explicating that a little bit more. Um, I do work with a lot of late identified adults. And once you are yourself identified, a lot of times you look back in your family tree and you're like, oh, that, per you know, great uncle John, you know, he was definitely or, oh, my sister or, oh, you know, whatever. Um, and so this does happen a lot. Um, and I think for me, it comes down to, well, many of us when we're identified have this sort of process of grief for not being identified earlier and going through life kind of without this information that could have really supported us, but also this overwhelming joy at being like, ah, I'm not the weird person. I belong to this whole other group of people who are just like me. Um, and especially as an autistic, once you start to meet other autistic people, it's like, ah, it's like finding the country you were born in. It's just mm -hmm. like suddenly feeling like you're part of the group after not really managing that for most of your life and you want to share that with other people in your in your group in your family who you feel like might be autistic um but for me what it comes down to is is it going to serve that person to have this label or not and it really depends and so um especially for older adults um and even for people my age the word autistic uh is still a negative label and it's not something they want to have um which can be hard to wrap your brain around when you've been excited to receive this label after many years of struggle in many cases. Um, but it is challenging for certain kinds of people to 
kind of think of themselves that way and want to think of themselves that way. Um, and so what can work better is to really approach it from the ground up. And instead of being like, hey, have you considered getting diagnosed? Because I think you have these traits and sort of coming in with a label um, and kind of pathologizing what until recently they thought was just normal about themselves to come at it from the other direction and say, you know, um, I noticed that sometimes you seem like this is hard for you. Is there any way I can support you in that? Right. And really to, instead of saying, you know, top down, I'm going to put a label on you because you're autistic, we're going to give you these supports. Instead to just come from the assumption that everybody deserves accommodations, regardless of their neurotype. This includes neurotypicals. If something is hard for you, then you deserve support in that hard thing. And um, if your family member is struggling with something, um, you know, trying to offer them support and trying to be open and saying, I'm seeing this, you know, can, is there, have you thought about, is there a way we can help you with this, right? Or make this easier for you. Um, and then over time, you can open some conversations. And if they start to seem like they're open to researching on their own and looking at it on their own, then you can bring up the label if you want to, if you think it's helpful. Um, but often, and I, you know, I like the label because I do, I do think it offers a sense of community to many people. And I do think there's a lot of work to be done in destigmatizing some of these labels like ADHD, autism, schizophrenic, bipolar. like these are all labels that especially neurotypical people tend to hear and go, oh, that's, that's, I'm sorry to hear that, right? Which is not always something we need to do. Um, but because there is a stigma attached to them, it's, it's reasonable to assume that other folks might also feel stigmatized by being labeled by you. Um, as unfortunate as as that is, and instead to come from this accommodations place of, you know, um, I notice that you get really upset when you have to deal with this thing. Like, what if we traded chores? Or I notice that, um, you know, the light really bothers you at the certain time of day. What if we got you sunglasses for that? Or whatever it is, you know, uh, there's a wide variety of accommodations. Um, and, you know, often if people want a label, they'll if once they start, once you start them on the accommodations perspective, then they might go Google it or they might go talk to their therapist or they might go whatever and then come to you and ask for support. And if somebody asks you like, hey, I know you're autistic. Can you point me to resources? That's great. Give them to them. But coming to people who aren't really in that mind space of being ready to, to think about themselves that way and just dumping stuff on them is not really kind or polite or supportive. It, it's, it's more about us wanting to share our thing. But that's not yeah. about them. And we have to work from them first that, you know, so I hope that's helpful. Yeah, uh, it comes from a, a good place. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so unbelievably tricky. And obviously, yeah. you have to know that that relationship. And yeah, I think coming at it from the perspective as is, is what I'm about to express for the individual? Or mm -hmm. is it about is it about me? Mm -hmm. I think that's a that's an important standpoint. And you say that you I think what you said about finding your community you know after your diagnosis yeah. when you're in your 30s you found you found your community did you feel like an outsider before that before you knew anything about it oh yes <laughs> yeah I am I and I've heard this from other people too so I don't think it's just me but many of us get our our label of whatever it is and it, and you sort of reinterpret your whole past <laughs> and you're like Oh, that time I was unbelievably awkward in high school. Like that was, you know, a social deficiency, quote unquote, or, um, oh, all those times I didn't know how to respond or, um, you know, I didn't realize this person meant this thing until hours later. That's a processing delay. And these things are normal and common in my group. Right. Um, so instead of it being me who can't do things and taking that burden on myself as a personal fault, 
or a set of personal faults. Instead, it's like, no, these are actually totally normal things in this group of people. It's just I didn't know I was part of that group of people, right? Um, so I think that it really kind of blew kind of blew my mind open. It I can't think of a better way to say it. It it really changed how I approached um, my own life and changed which things are quote unquote my fault. And instead, it's like oh, these things are me just being bad at life. These things are just autistic traits and reframing that whole narrative for myself and saying, you are doing the best you can. You communicate differently than other people. You move differently than other people. Your brain literally works differently than other people. And I have a lot of strengths other people don't have, um, but also a lot of weaknesses because we're all mix a mix of those things. And that's again, normal. Um, but in neurotypical social life, I was just a set of weaknesses like constantly. Um, and being able to say, oh, no, <laughs> you're not just a bunch of weak traits. You, you have all these strengths that you just weren't putting emphasis on because they're not valued by this, this neurotypical group. The way they're valued in autistic society um, was really, yeah, just mind blowing and, and really shifted my perspective of myself. Um, and that's something I try to do for clients, too, because a lot of times you get this diagnosis late in life and people have been not on purpose, but for a long time kind of putting you down for not communicating uh, the way they expect you to, for not meeting their expectations, basically, because you're not a neurotypical, but we thought you were neurotypical. So why can't you meet neurotypical expectations, right? And the minute you have this, no, I'm actually ADHD, I'm actually autistic, you can say, well, those expectations aren't for me. They're for neurotypicals. I'm autistic. So all I have to do is meet autistic expectations, which are different and, and tend to match us better, right? Um, and now I can communicate to neurotypicals and say, hey, I'm noticing these expectations. I can't meet them. And that's not my fault, but that's just how it's going to be. So how can we collaborate to meet in the middle, right? Which is a, a speech pattern or a script that I didn't have before um, because I, I thought I was just supposed to be able to do it, right? So it was always about me instead of about let's let's meet together. So it's yeah, I think, a, I think a lot of people struggle in their lives when they don't this is this is this is for most people yeah when they don't find their community or their little cliques you know like mm -hmm. um i th i think back to being at school and i think i feel i don't think i was really an individual at school i feel yeah. like i was just trying to fit in and survive and just you know you know wear the right things that i thought everyone else would wear you know like mm -hmm. we do those things and they're so unbelievably like not unique to you as an actual yeah. person so you grow up you do this huge part of your whole life not actually knowing who you are and what it is mm -hmm. that you like and, and expressing that. And then <clears throat> for a lot of individuals who don't find their, their community, whether it's, whether it's like sports teams or whether it's like a religious circle or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, once you find your in those individuals that have very similar interests and similar passions to, to you, you can start being a bit more comfortable in your own skin, I think. And I think yeah. that, um, what you're talking about in regards to finding your community after, you know, 30 plus years of not quite having your tribe, how wonderful and uplifting that, that must've been for you. And you say you, you're taking that, you, you took that whole experience to be like a really positive, wonderful transformation. It sounds like. Yeah. And I, I mean, that is true. And I, um, I, I do agree with your statement that, I think a lot of us 
uh, especially as as we're youth and adolescents and trying to figure out what life is and what, what we even want sure. and what we're doing. Um, a lot of us are struggling to meet expectations that are sort of just floating out there in the world, how you dress, how you act, how you speak, right? Um, how you communicate with other people. Um, I think it's sort of true for everybody and then kind of almost another tier or even more intense for neurodivergent people. Um, and the the best sort of analogy I've seen uh, other people used to say that is go, you know, trying to be normal in another country where you just don't understand the norms, right? Um, and you're going to have more trouble. It's not like you can't do it. It's not like it's impossible. It's not like everybody else isn't struggling too, but it's just this extra layer of difficulty. Um, so that's one piece I wanted to say. And then um, it was really uplifting for me and really supportive for me. But also there's this, and I, I mentioned this before, there's this other side of it, which is this grief of having spent, you know, my entire young adulthood and, and childhood feeling like I was a wrong person, right? Like that I, I wasn't working right. Um, and I've heard that echoed with many of my clients that um, many of us are identified in our 20s, 30s. Many of us are identified as children, but many of us, I, I have multiple clients who are unidentified till their 60s or 70s. And at that point, it's like, it's never too late. Like, you know, you can still um, make a lot of changes, but it's also like that's 60 years of feeling like you don't fit in or don't belong or like you're in this country where no one speaks your language. Um, and that's why, you know, um, I really want to advocate. That's part of why I do the work I do is because if we can get more people identified earlier and kind of finding their people earlier, um, that's how many more happier, healthier, <laughs> uh, well, you know, people in the world than, you know, there would have been. Um, and how much less trauma that people have to experience for, you know, forcing ourselves to fit in, in in a way that's not supportive to us for 30 years. And so many of us have to unlearn stuff that we picked up that's not, um, it is similar, similar to trauma. It's not exactly the same, but, um, you know, neurodivergent trauma is a thing where we have learned to kind of hide ourselves and subvert ourselves in order to fit into a mainstream. And once we have a label, we can be, we can start to uncover that and dig that out and say, oh, I don't actually have to, you know, not wave my hands in public. No one's judging me. Right. Or that's a, that's a really kind of um, obvious example, but it's the best one I have. Right. But there are layers of things that we have suppressed as autistic or neurodivergent people that then we finally feel comfortable digging out. But to dig that out in your sixties or seventies, there's a lot of grief associated with that, yeah. you know, and even in my thirties. So yeah, it's this very binary it was very liberating and also very tough and hard and sad. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex, it's a complex yeah. thing to have happened. <clears throat> Super complex. And I really appreciate you sharing that with me because that is, yeah, it's something like, you know, a lot of people just wouldn't understand mm -hmm. Yeah, and be very, very difficult for them to even put, put themselves in your position to even begin to understand it. And I totally agree with you in regards to that extra layer of complexity when it comes to, trying to find find your community within within that circle yeah i absolutely mm -hmm. understand yeah. um when it comes to collaborative problem solving mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about like what that is we've certainly covered a little a little bit i, I think of it but can you tell us what it is and how can parents use it to start improving their whole family's well-being oh sure so this is under my wheelhouse as a parent coach and i work with mixed neurotype families, which just means families where some folks are neurodivergent and some folks are neurotypical, or there's a, a mix of different brains. Um, and this again gets back to this idea that um, often 
we have expectations about how things should go. And those expectations might not actually be founded in reality. They're often pulled, especially with parenting from our own parents. How did our parents do it? What did they expect from their kids? And so, okay, I should expect the same from my kids. But kids are people, for, for first and foremost. And so with collaborative parenting, collaborative problem solving, what we do is we treat uh, everybody who's having the problem as a, as a person, first and foremost, with basic human rights. And we work from there and we try to figure out what are some ways that we can both adjust our expectations to meet in the middle. Um, and collaborative problem solving is used in many offices and many workplaces and whatever, but um, it works really well with parenting neurodivergent kids because often neurodivergent kids uh, have extra sensitivities, sensory processing uh, challenges, uh, uh, processing delays, whether they're auditory processing delays like I was describing before or cognitive. So sometimes it takes us a little longer to get through a decision than a neurotypical person. Um, or there's more things we have to consider in terms of our comfort and our safety, our feeling safe in a situation. So collaborative parenting is about um, assuming that your child is doing the best, assuming that any kind of struggle or pushback you're seeing is not personal to you as a parent, but is rather about the child struggling and kind of stopping what you're doing, slowing down and really working out how can we fix this problem to both of our mutual benefit. Um, and it's a process of parenting that initially takes a really long time, <laughs> where every time you have a problem, you are stopping what you're doing and just really digging down into what the issue is. But then over time, you both get better at it as parents and children, and you solve things fast, and everybody's happy, and it's real nice. Um, so an example I often use, I have some, I, I do trainings on this, I have resources on my website, um, and I'm happy to email but like help folks over email. But the, the most basic example I usually use is that my daughter, when she was very young, would um, have three hour tantrums over putting on shoes to get out of the house. Um, because of sensory overwhelm, where she didn't like the way the shoes felt, because of um, what, what's called demand avoidance, which is a horrible term, but basically means that um, there are some children who don't like being told what to do because it interferes with their kind of self, um, I, what's the word? Their ability to feel like their own person, right? So they want to choose. Um, and that can be very common in neurodivergent kiddos who um, are already a little bit rigid and already like things the way we like them. And I'm speaking for myself here too. Um, so we would have these three hour tantrums over shoes. And um, eventually what the only thing that worked was every time sitting down, waiting for her to calm. And then once we were both calm, really talking it out and saying, well, what is it about the shoes? Is there another way we can do this? Dropping all of my expectations that we put on shoes to go to the grocery store and saying, well, what, what else can we do in this situation that solves both our needs, right? I need your feet to be protected. She needs to be comfortable. And so how do we meet? And sometimes it was different every time. Sometimes it was like, oh, we'll wear shoes on one foot, but not the other one. It's better than nothing. Sometimes it's like, oh, we'll wear double socks. Sometimes it's like for this one outing, you don't actually need shoes. We figured this out. You know, what if we put our shoes on when we got to the store instead of right now in the house? Um, and, you know, this is a, a small example. But if you what happens is over time, uh, you're showing your child that you respect them as an individual, that you will hear their side of the story, that you are on the team with them and will support them. Um, and then they're on your team, too. Right. So if I get overwhelmed and I need a minute, I can just say at this point in my life, I am overwhelmed. I need to go in my room for three minutes and they'll be like, okay, mom's taking a break, right? So there's this mutual support that happens and mutual trust that happens on both sides. 
um, which is really important with neurodivergent kids. Because again, as a parent, I don't want my kiddos to have to suppress themselves the way that I was, you know, suppressed by well-meaning people when I was a kid. Um, and so really focusing on their needs and their ability to learn to articulate their needs, um, to say what they need to set boundaries for themselves and their bodies. These are all kind of really important parenting goals and collaborative parenting kind of encompasses all of those very neatly um, in a way that has been really supportive of my family personally, but also a lot of other families that I work with. So, yeah, I think that type of problem solving would benefit so many different relationships and so it many works everywhere. Ways. Yeah. Yeah. Without <laughs> question, because we have, as again, it's like, is is us going to the store about me is it like you know or can i actually meet meet my child where they're at you know like mm -hmm. i think especially i've got two year i've got a two-year-old and a 10-month-year-old and especially with the two-year-old he must be tired soon <laughs> yeah um <clears throat> it's con you, you're constantly having to problem solve yes and collaborate and i know when things are a bit too much for me and i might get a little bit might get a bit anxious or I might get a little bit angry or rageful in, in the moment. Mm -hmm. I know that, I know that, that that's, it's never, well, 100% of the time it's never helpful and never, never benefits the situation. Mm -hmm. But when, when I do find, do find it within myself to you know sit and communicate and yeah, as you say, like meet the child where they're at and take their understanding and their feelings and mm -hmm. what they may want to do and how they're, how they're feeling into consideration it's so beneficial and it, it spans out throughout the relationship. It's not it just does. about, it's not just about that moment mm -hmm. and about that situation. It's about the whole relationship building with, within the family. And as you say, if everybody can kind of get on board with that type of approach, the children can start to learn how to do those things with, with the adults. Cause you know, we obviously get overwhelmed as well. We don't yeah. always want to put our shoes on. No, we do not. <laughs> no. So yeah, I, find, I find that interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's right. No, so I just I, I find that very, very interesting, especially having you know, yeah, young, young children who are literally learning how to be human beings mm -hmm. in a very complex, rem remarkable way. And the, the neurochemistry that they have and the, the ability that they have to think and feel and behave is quite remarkable and overwhelming for anybody. So we have to we have to um, use compassion and, and understanding and patience and time to be able to improve improve those relationships and you know develop help develop these individuals as individuals rather than attempting to control them and sculpt them into what we think that they should be yeah that's exactly my perspective you hit it on the nose and i think collaborative parenting anyway is about this kind of democratic approach of you know taking everyone in your family and putting you on the same because you have more experience as the parent right like you know what a red traffic light means and you know what it means when a car is coming and so there are ways that you have more information than your children and experience but in terms of our actual humanness we are on the same page right we are um so we want to in my my opinion is that um if we uphold sort of this democratic idea of everybody having their own rights everybody being supported in the world that accommodations perspective I was talking about before of just making it easier for everybody, that democratic parenting is a good way to do that too, to really interrogate what are their needs? How do we meet them? Um, and that, as you say, builds up, it takes a long time in the beginning, but it gets faster because eventually everyone trusts each other. And, you know, you can assume, you can start to assume, oh, my kid isn't just bugging me to bug me, right? Or, uh, oh, my dad isn't angry because he hates me. It's because, you know, you, you start to, and you talk about stuff like emotional regulation, right? You talk about how do I take a deep breath? 
how do I calm down? But you can use vocabulary, you can build vocabulary together and say, you know, I'm feeling very stressed out right now and I need a minute. Um, I did that. I was at the pool with my kids yesterday and one of them asked me to fix their goggles and I hate, I can't handle fidgety little, I get really angry real fast. <laughs> it's not a thing I'm proud of, but I tried for like a minute and I was like, child, I'm really sorry. I'm going to throw these. I'm going to have a tantrum. Can you bring them to your dad? And I'm going to take two minutes. And she was like, okay. Cause she, like, she knew it wasn't about her or the goggles. It was just, I can't handle fidgety things. Right. <laughs> and we've built that up over a period of time. Whereas when I was a kid, despite having really excellent parents, especially for the time period, um, if a, if a parent got angry in the same room I was in, it was like, oh gosh, like I have done something. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think parenting norms have really shifted and that this is a great way to kind of shift with them and really enable kids to be brave and be themselves and be able to, to say, you know, um, I, you know, my kids will often say, Hey, you know, I, I feel like you're overwhelmed. Do you want to take a break? My co-parent the other day was telling me that he was playing a game with my son and he was fidgeting on a Rubik's cube while he was playing the game. And my son got annoyed with him and said, do you think we could put that down just until the game is done? My son's nine. And he told his dad to like put the Rubik's cube away. And I was like setting boundaries, advocating for one's needs. Like that's amazing, <laughs> you know? And I would give that to collaborative parent parenting. I think like that's what it does. It allows kids to set boundaries and be sure of themselves when they ask for what they need. So I was real proud. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Bravo for that because that, that's obviously a lot of work goes into that and your child understanding the power of their power of their words and the power mm -hmm. that, that, that of their parents to understand them and respect them and knowing that if they ask them in a very particular way, then they will be heard, they will be listened to. Yeah, yeah. that's important. I think it, it really, if you want the next generation to you know, it, it's a, what's a parenting kind of phrase is you just want to do a little better than your parents did for you. Sure. And for me, this is the way this is the way to do it. And, you know, I didn't learn how to advocate for myself. I didn't learn how to tell people no until way too late in my life. And I'm like, no, I want my seven year old daughter to be able to say no right now, you know, <laughs> if she needs to, if she needs yeah. to set a boundary. So just to finish up, I'd love mm -hmm. to if you've got have you got any takeaways for neurotypical people? to maybe increase their understanding and compassion towards people who towards neurodiverse neurodiverse people because i think well first of all i don't think a lot of neurotypical people even understand that these individuals are there mm -hmm. unless they absolutely know but you know I, i'm just thinking about like in my life experience i think a lot of people just expect everyone else that they see out in the street to you know know the rules of the game or whatever be like them. Yeah. to be like them to be typical so and and I think I think that so many people will have people in their circles in their relationships at work or whatever that there are mm -hmm. that obviously are different and I just wonder if there's something that you, a takeaway that you that you can think of that might help those individuals think a little bit differently about their expectations of everyone sure so um yeah 10 to 13% of people worldwide are neurodivergent um so you know somebody, you probably know multiple somebodies <laughs> who are, you know, some kind. And many of us, um, it does sort of um, double up. <laughs> so many of us are more than one kind of neurodivergent. Um, right. But you definitely know somebody. There's probably someone in your family. There's somebody at work. There's somebody in your kid's school class, you know, um, probably more than one somebody. Um, and I think the best thing I can say is to just try. And I know this doesn't fit with the world at large in many ways. Um, 
But unless you have good evidence to the contrary, try to assume that folks are doing their best. And if somebody is, uh, you know, slower than you would like, if somebody asks you a million questions <laughs> um, before they under, you know, seem like they understand what they need, um, if whatever you're seeing that's causing you frustration, if you can just take a breath and assume that they are asking you because they need the help or they're slow because they need the time and working from there, right? Um, and sometimes just asking if you're seeing an issue or if you're perceiving an issue, saying, is there anything I can do to make this easier? Because um, a lot of us are used to just sort of sucking it up and pushing forward because when we ask, um, and this is getting better, but off, many of us, when we've asked in the past, have been shut down real hard. And so we don't ask anymore because we might get fired or we might get, you know, some kind of negative consequence. Um, but if you ask us like, hey, is there a way I could, you know, set up this process, process at the office to make it easier for you? Um, do you want more meetings, less meetings? Um, you know, are you, is the place you're working a comfortable place for you to work? Whatever you can do in whatever way you can, um, ask us what we need. We, we know, and we will try to, <laughs> we, we would love uh, to be working better. You know, we, we want to, um, support the world just as much as you do. Um, and then the other thing I'll just say is you have, um, re regardless of the neurotype, you have um, advocacy organizations in your community. So there are chapters of um, autistic-led organizations all over the country, ADHD-led organizations, bipolar-led organizations. So if you can, if you're interested in learning more about any specific neurodivergence, find the organizations that are led by the people who have that neurodivergence, right? Um, one of the big pushbacks against places like Autism Speaks is that they're run by neurotypical people. And so that whole issue of even when people are doing their best, they're still maybe promoting stuff that actually autistic people don't want promoted or isn't helpful to us. So if you can find the organizations that are run by the folks who are, you know, with that neurotype, you will get better information. You will get better resources to actually improve our lives uh, and, and improve our well-being. Um, and that is the best advice I can give everybody, I think. <laughs> I hope Fantastic. it's helpful. Fantastic. I think that's really, really helpful. And I really appreciate that very wonderful insight that you have there. Can you let us know how we can connect with you just for my audience? Oh, sure. Thanks. So I'm, uh, I am host the Neurodiverging podcast, which comes out uh, about twice a month. And you can find that on any streaming service. I'm also at neurodiverging.com, um, where I have a blog with lots of articles, links to the podcast and uh, my coaching services. So if you are in need of a parent coach or a neurodiversity coach, or even if you are just looking for resources, if something I said was like, oh, I really want to find autistic-led resources in my community and I can't find it, be Google. If you email me, I will help you. I will not sell you stuff um, because I think it's important to get that information out there. So, <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'll make sure that that information is in the show notes, but thank you so much again for joining us, Danielle. I really appreciate your insight and time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. For more information about anything that we've spoken about in this episode, I will make sure I will leave um, notes in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Thank you so much for listening to True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. We're going to see you next week. <laughs>